Welcome everyone to our weekly session on critical issues confronting China. Uh, today we have uh, our own uh, member, Bob Ross, uh, who's been a very loyal and faithful member of our center, a uh, member of the executive committee, always ready to do more than his part in keeping the center going and working on big issues. Uh, Bob got his uh, PhD from Columbia in 1984 uh, he has spent a lot of time in Beijing. He's uh, uh, been at the uh, Beida for a year. He was at Tsinghua for a year. Uh, he was at Foreign Affairs College for a year. Uh, and he keeps in touch uh, with uh, counterparts there. Uh, he's also in great demand uh, this morning. He gave a talk to over 200 uh, U.S. military officers at the U.S. War College. Uh, he has written widely on uh, international affairs. He's had a particular interest in uh, issues with China and Vietnam. Uh, he's what uh, we call a realist uh, who uh, looks at things as they are uh, and has uh, been calling them uh, like they are and has been calling them usually before other people begin to catch up. Um, he moved from his nice home in the suburbs to uh, the coast, uh, uh, a nice apartment overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. And then he uh, went off to Wyoming uh, for the coronavirus era, uh, where uh, cowboy uh, Bob Ross uh, hangs out in his study uh, and continues his research. Uh, so uh, we're very pleased that uh, Bob set aside the time today uh, to talk to us on issues of uh, the rising uh, China in perspective, uh, global threat, uh, or uh, great power. I want to call first on Nick uh, to uh, tell uh, how we conduct the questions, just to remind uh, those of you who haven't been with us uh, recently. Uh, Nick, you want to say about that word and then uh, over to Bob Ross. Uh, thank you, Ezra. Uh, so those of you who have attended sessions in the last few months with us um, will know how this goes. Um, but if you haven't, um, at the bottom of your screen um, in Zoom, you have kind of your control tab and there's a Q&A um, button. If you have questions during the event, um, please feel free to enter the questions there. Um, there is an anonymous option. Um, these, are, these events are recorded and then posted online afterwards. I believe they're going up on our YouTube channel in about a week or so after, after they happen. Um, so keep that in mind. If you'd like to ask a question anonymously, you may do so. Um, if you don't ask it anonymously, please provide your name and current affiliation so that we can um, identify the, who's asking the question. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Bob. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Ezra. It's always a pleasure to speak to the Critical Issues Series. Um, I think this is perhaps the most important contemporary lecture series in the United States today on contemporary China. Weekly, um, speakers come in from around the world, from around the nation, to talk about where China is and where it's going. And I think it's critically important that we keep these kind of dialogues and meetings ongoing. So it's, I think it's important the Fairbank Center has continued to do this dialogue, Ezra's continued to do this series, despite the interruptions, may not be as good as a in-person in -person event, maybe only virtual, but I'm very grateful to be invited and it's important to keep it going. 
Um, today, I want to talk about rising China in perspective, global threat, or great power competitor. And that the base here is how do we understand Chinese behavior? What is China doing in the world? And how do we come to grips with it? How do we evaluate it? Now, there are different perspectives in which to evaluate China. We can have a policy perspective and a diplomatic assessment. And we would expect the United States to adopt a national security perspective on the rise of China. We would expect the Beltway to reflect that perspective. And you would expect the diplomatic language, we would expect the Beltway language to reflect part of an instrumental effort to promote American diplomacy and to contribute to the success of American diplomacy around the world. Having said that, it should be clear that to the extent that this is American rhetoric and description of China is instrumental, it may not accurately capture just what China is doing. So then we have a political science perspective. And from that perspective, we don't look at China as insofar as how it challenges American interests, American security. We don't adopt a diplomatic perspective on how um, we understand China. We look at China as a great power in international politics, what its objectives are, what its ambitions are, how it's using its capabilities, and how it's competing, including with the United States, with other great powers. This requires not a diplomatic or a policy perspective, but a political perspective with a comparative historical perspective. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do we see China, and how do we think about China, not from the perspective of American diplomacy, American security, American foreign policy, but as a great power in world affairs. Now this difference, of course, is the difference between the Beltway, let's say, and Cambridge. The Beltway perspective is not anomalous, it's to be expected, but it's not necessarily helpful in understanding China or the sources of Chinese behavior. So, again, is China a rising power? Well, yes, it's still rising, um, but having said that, it's also been rising for a long time now. So it's achieved some remarkable success at closing the gap with the United States, something we'll come back to. But we should understand that as a rising power, China is necessarily, necessarily revisionist. All rising powers are revisionist. They were not at the table when the great powers sat down and created regional security orders. So if you were in Europe, they were not at Yalta, they were not at Potsdam. And when the regional security order was created in East Asia following World War II, um, the United States was the only country at the table because we were the only great power in maritime East Asia. So an issue here is China's revisionist objectives for the security order, the regional security order, not the global order. Important to recognize that uh, great powers, when they compete, they compete over regions, they compete within regions. And so the US, so to think of China as a global power or to understand America's competition with China as a global power is not helpful. We are two great powers in East Asia competing in East Asia. Now what do great powers do? They divide up a region. They create, the great powers sit down and they create security orders. And, what, and the result is you get spheres of influence, you get buffer states, you get bases, you get allies. And who's on whose side? Who has which allies? Who has bases where? Um, who gets buffer states and which ones? That's the function of the distribution of power among the great powers within a region and how they can negotiate and come to some sort of meeting of the minds of what the region should look like. Now, every region has a security order. So the Cold War security order was the Iron Curtain, if you will, down the center of Europe, and the American sphere of influence was on the West European side. The Soviet sphere of influence was in Eastern Europe. Now, we didn't negotiate that. It was a de facto event. 
um, created by the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe, but nonetheless, it was still a security order reflecting the distribution of power to the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, Cold War Asia. The initial security order in post-World War II um, East Asia was the United States was the great power in East Asia, the only great power in East Asia. The United States had strategic and military presence on the periphery of China on mainland East Asia, whether it was in Korea, whether it was in China, whether it was in Thailand, whether there's a presence on Taiwan, we were on the mainland. Well, it's not a wonder that we got wars because we don't think of it, but China was a great power, a rising power in 1949-50, civil war ended, a single revenue stream going from warlords into Beijing, a unified army not fighting civil wars, but defending borders. October 1st, 1949, Chairman Mao gets a briefing and he sees American forces surrounding China. And he says, get off my border. And the United States expanded to the Yalu River, get off my border. United States fought in France, fought two wars in Indochina. China supports wars in Indochina. The Russians support the Vietnamese, occupy Cambodia. Chinese are gonna support war in Asia. This is what great powers do. Get off my border. If necessary, we will fight. The French, the Americans, and the Russians, the Soviet Union all resisted China's demand to get off their border. Rising China. We just find the security order in East Asia so that it is has secure borders and it required war to do so. The post-Cold War regional order was still a reflection of the post-Cold War regional order, still a reflection of the post-World War II regional order. America was, is, was the dominant, hegemonic, unipolar, maritime great power in East Asia from 1945 till recently. In that respect, we also see regional orders with hegemony elsewhere. India has had basically hegemony in South Asia, with the exception of Pakistan. The United States, of course, has regional hegemony, a sphere of influence in the Western Hemisphere. That's what happens when you're the only great power, you create a regional order in which you dominate. Rising power says, rising powers are revisionists, and China says American hegemonic maritime power is incompatible with Chinese security. Now, rising powers seek security commensurate with their power. So as their power grows, they want more security, and they weren't at the table when that security order was created, they say revise the security order. There are two ways they do it. With national military power to change the bilateral balance of power with the existing great power, and when they do that, to change the regional security order by changing the alignments of secondary powers. So what had been on one country's side moves to another country's side. You used to have a base here, that base is no longer reliable. You used to have an alliance, that alliance is, is eroded. Bilateral national power changes, balance of power changes, the country then works to change the regional security order. How do they do that? Well, countries use economic power as a foundation of military power, and they build up their capabilities, economic influence, formal or informal with an economic empire, or in military spending with an arms buildup, and sometimes that results in arms races. And they use that economic and military power to compel other countries to change their policies. They target other great powers to accept the changing military balance, and they target secondary powers to compel them to realign, to shift their allegiances to 
weaken their cooperation with the adversarial great power. That's what rising powers do. And of course, sometimes this ends up in war. It's not always peaceful. One power gets impatient, the other power refuses to budge, refuses to accommodate. So this is what great powers do, and we need to see China in this perspective. This is what Athens did, Napoleon did, what the United States did in the Caribbean at the turn of the 20th century, Bismarck's Germany, World War I Germany, World War II Germany and Japan. This is what they do. So the issue is we don't question China's intentions as a rising power. Its intentions grow with its capabilities, and as China's capabilities grow, its intentions for East Asia grow accordingly to create a new regional order that gives China security. This is expected rising power behavior. The question we ask about China is what, is, what are its risk-taking proclivities? When we think about Hitler, we think about his willingness to take risks. When we think about the Japanese high command, we think about their willingness to take risks. We think about countries' willingness to use force to achieve their objectives. And so we evaluate them and how they use those capabilities to create change. Do they inflict pain? Do they inflict violence? Do they create war? Are they in a hurry? Are they, are they excessively violent? And that's what we do when we look at great powers as rising powers. And that perspective is especially important today as we look at China. Of course, it's the revisionist power, but how does China use its power? So how do we understand China as a rising power? And there are different perspectives. The US foreign policy perspective is one of threat perceptions, one of interest. And how do we respond? How has the US responded? Well, we have weaponized, if you will, value judgments on the behavior of China. We, we weaponize those judgments to facilitate the mobilization of our domestic resources, whether it's defense budgets, whether it's support for trade wars or tech wars, and we mobilize our value judgments in order to persuade the West, rest of the world that they should cooperate with the United States. So we call China communist China, or we call China communist, we don't talk to China, we talk to the Communist Party of China. And we say that China is trying to overthrow the global order and has done more damage to the global order than any country in history. And these are not reliable judgments about China, but they're instrumental in American foreign policy. The international politics perspective is relative compared to China's predecessors as rising powers. China will use its capabilities, but it is a threat to the survival of other countries. It is a threat to launch war. Its ambitions are going to cause heightened conflict, but is there heightened nationalism and an unwillingness to moderate to reduce the cost to other countries? So we have seen the fundamental rise of China. We've seen the economic rise of China. The first 30 years of modernization of China saw a minimal increase in China's maritime naval buildup. China built its ground forces, but it continued to modernize by importing Soviet equipment, Russian equipment, for the acquisition of technology. And you have to say that China was extremely strategic in its use of the international economy for its rise. Peaceful rise was, in essence, a diplomacy designed to create an environment to maximize China's domestic economic development. And it was quite successful. The stable international world allowed China to tap into the economic resources of the world. What did it do? Every soft loan with World Bank, every grant, whether it's the World Bank, whether it's Japan soft loans, American soft loans, whatever loans or grants they got, it went to infrastructure development for airports, for, for airports, seaports, railways, the essential elements of economic growth. It conducted foreign trade to create capital 
for economic development. They open up for foreign investment to attract technology into China. This joint venture law, however much it's problematic today, was extremely successful for tech transfer to China. Its intellectual property rights enforcement was weak. Well, every country that's risen has stolen intellectual property rights from other countries. We stole it from the British. Um, if countries are willing to transfer with intellectual property to China, so be it. And China was willing to take it because security requires catching up. Um, countries have never been very good at stopping other countries from stealing secrets. Today, military technology is what is high-tech. And today, if you leave the front door open, countries are going to come in. And military technology diffuses quite rapidly in a digital world. That China is copying, that China is carrying on industrial espionage. This is detrimental to American security, but this is not something that allow us to create value judgments to say China is aggressive or belligerent power. Behavior as normal. Um, and for what it's worth, countries over the years have tried to stop other countries from stealing their technology to um, build up their own military capabilities, and they have always failed. Whether it's the French building the ironclad, whether it's the Germans and the British over the dreadnoughts, whether the United States and nuclear weapon, and even in terms of organization, Napoleon's staff system for his military created French power, and the Prussians and the Germans received a copy. Now compare China, the Soviet Union, India, and Japan, even Japan, closed economies, and they failed to compete. From a political science perspective, the rise of China is really something that requires some degree of admiration just how effective they were over a 30 or 40 year period compared to other countries such as India or Russia that failed to let other countries in because of nationalism, other issues, and whose infrastructure has not advanced beyond much of the basics for the last 50 years. China didn't exercise any military power to was ready. It waited to establish border security. So, First after the Cold War, it built up its army. And then as it saw the gradual decline, continued decline of Russia, and they looked around their borders, and they said, we have no threats. Oh, now we can build a navy. Important to understand the Americans and naval power, because the two issues, Canada and the United States, China's got no border threats. Only then did they start to build their navy. Again, compared to other countries that tried to build a navy prematurely, France, Kaiser Wilhelm, World War II Japan, tried to be continental powers and naval powers simultaneously, they all failed. China waited until they didn't need to spend excessive resources on their army. They could spend it on their navy. And all this contributed to defense spending. In the last few years, average defense, defense spending in China was 10% a year. And finally, in about 2012, China said, now we can build a navy. And defense production significantly. Before then, they built a new generation of ships. They say, these are still bad ships. We're not going to build a navy. Next generation, build a few ships. Then wait, third generation, build just a few ships so they get the technology down. Finally, they said, now we'll build a lot of ships. Again, a strategic, well-thought approach to being a rising power. Well, the Xi Jinping in 2012 was the beneficiary of rising China. He didn't create it. 
Deng Xiaoping, Jiangsu Min, Hu Jintao created rise in China. But in 2012, when he assumed power, he says China is now ready to compete. And the buildup became, in 2012, very, very quick. Submarines, surface ships, aircraft carriers, destroyers, missiles, modern missiles based on ships. A very, very rapid Chinese buildup of maritime capability. Is this particularly belligerent? No, the country's not supposed to give the other country a chance to respond. But it wasn't a secret. There wasn't naval ships hidden, and one day China had a 400-ship navy. Since 2012, it's been obvious to everyone inside Washington that China was beginning a rapid ship production process that would quickly create a large and capable navy. So that the closing of the gap reflected one, the rise of the underlying Chinese economy and technologies, but two, America's complacence, or perhaps a slowness to react. China is now a larger navy with modern ships and missiles. It is what we were concerned about if you were in Washington. It is now a fully fledged peer competitor. It's a potential war-winning capability in the South China Sea. No longer is the South China Sea an American lake. America no longer has naval dominance. America will, at this point, could well win the war, but we're not sure. That's what makes a bipolar region with two great powers. Both countries can contend in a war with the other. Again, admiration. The risk for China of this process was very great. Status quo great powers have an inclination to carry out preventive war. The British did it against Copenhagen in 1807. Admiral Jackie Fisher went to the King of England multiple times to say, I want to launch a surprise attack against the German Navy. The British King said no. China was acutely aware that they were in a window of vulnerability in which the United States might carry out a preventive war against the Chinese Navy. They were aware of this risk, and they avoided it, despite the more activities and more served they became to avoid naval crises, to avoid pushing the U.S. to the point it might be a pretext for war. They avoided belligerence, and they were patient as they moved forward. This is what we tend to call China's gray area of operations. It was using its Navy, using its Coast Guard, using its greater authority as a rising power to affect change but in areas that were neither peaceful <clears throat> nor excessively belligerent to create a crisis in the risk of war. But what does China want? Well, this should be fairly clear too. It wants a new security order. The post-World War II security order, Maritime East Asia was clear and it continued in the post-Cold War era. The US with air and naval bases surrounding the Chinese coastal perimeter. South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia. The United States dominated the waters of the East China Sea, the Yellow Sea, the South China Sea, with a string of bases and alliances that made China's coastal waters vulnerable to American power. What did America do with those capabilities? Well, we carried out real-time surveillance of Chinese South China Sea ports with American submarines going within 12 miles of Chinese territorial waters to track Chinese submarines leaving ports going out to sea. 
What did the United States do with that capability? With impunity, it mapped the ocean floor up to 12 miles of the Chinese coastline so as to prepare for submarine warfare. In 1995, a U.S. aircraft carrier sailed down the middle of the Taiwan Strait. Chinese didn't know. Those are all unacceptable circumstances for a rising power. China never accepted that status quo. It just lacked the capability to do something about it. With new capabilities, rising powers, revisionists, China seeks to revise that security order. And wants greater security commensurate with its capability, and not an unexpected demand of any rising power. What does it want in reality? It wants secondary states in the region to accommodate Chinese interests. And what does that mean? How are they? Challenging Chinese interests today by cooperating with the United States, by providing the United States with facilities and diplomacy and foreign policies that contribute to U.S. challenges to Chinese security. China's demand is very clear in these states. Reduce your strategic cooperation with the United States. This in turn entails a weakening of the American alliance system in East Asia. Now, Put it differently, America will no longer have strategic dominance, no longer have maritime hegemony on China's perimeter. What does it want? Well, on the mainland of East Asia, it wants spheres of influence. It wants a sphere of influence in the Korean Peninsula. Well, why? Because we will recall that in 1950, American troops came right up to the edge of the Yalu River, threatening Chinese security, regardless of who started the Korean War. And today, the United States still has 28,500 28, troops in South Korea, air bases and naval bases. Not a comfortable environment to live in. Mainland Southeast Asia, Indochina, Burma, Thailand, recall, basically two Vietnam Wars in which French and American troops were fighting close to the Chinese border. And then the third war in Indochina where the Soviets allied with Vietnam to carry out war in Cambodia and establish strategic presence on Chinese borders. Not having spheres of influence in maritime East Asia posed grave threats to Chinese security. That's the mainland. Maritime Southeast Asia, what, what does China want? Well, I would say its immediate objective is to end America's sphere of influence in Southeast Asia, maritime Southeast Asia. Doesn't want Chinese hegemony? I assume it does. After all, you know, America had it. We like it. Even now we're, we're losing it, but we're working really hard to keep it, so we must like it. And, I, and we certainly have maritime hegemony in the Western Hemisphere, which we enjoy. So I assume China wants maritime hegemony in East Asia. But that's not a question of ambition. It's a question whether it has the capabilities to support those ambitions over time, which is a function of the U.S.-China balance of power and over time how it develops. Um, right now, I think the United States has the capacity to maintain a bipolar region, maritime region. Um, so no U.S. sphere of influence in maritime East Asia. Again, a reasonable expectation, ambition of rising power. Get off my borders. Get off my coastal waters. So we have rising China, which is a revisionist China, which wants to revise the security order with new capability. Anyone who watched China from the 19, late 70s, early 80s, into the 90s, assumed that if China was successful, this day would come. No surprise. Well, how has China used its military power? Well, let's establish, first of all, that it must use its military power and its economic power if it wants change. 
or China simply to go to Singapore, the Philippines, or South Korea and say, you know, we really don't like your cooperation with the United States. Would you mind, would you please change your relationship? It wouldn't get a vote for Only by exercising power could China affect the cost-benefit analyses of other states so as to get those to compel them to accommodate Chinese interests by distancing the relationship with the United States. China's use of force, peaceful use of force, since 2012 has been frequent and targeted in many countries. South Korea was a target of Chinese coercion following the deployment of the theater high altitude area defense system, the United States put it. Japan was the target of Chinese coercion following the 2012 Japanese government purchase of the disputed island. The Philippines was the target of Chinese coercion from 2013 on over the Scarborough Shoal and then the Philippine submission to the permanent court of arbitration of their territorial dispute with China. Vietnam has been a target of Chinese coercive diplomacy since 2010 over Vietnamese cooperation with foreign powers in exploring and coming for oil in disputed waters. And in each case, it was a use of coercive power when these countries were challenging Chinese interests in cooperation with the United States. They were using American power to resist China. And China's signaling was clear. We can make life difficult for you. Stop collaborating with the United States. Well, how did they do it? Well, economic sanctions against Korea, they were extensive following the deployment of FAD, Philippines, bananas and tourism, Vietnam, significant decline across border trade and Chinese investment in Vietnam when the, China, when the Vietnamese accelerated their cooperation with the United States and challenged Chinese sovereignty claims. Japan, boycotts in Japan and perhaps rare earths. This is an active economic coercive diplomacy. All right. Doesn't compare to American sanctions around the world. And second, it's just economics. The country was simply to ex exercise economic sanctions to get what they want. Um, that would be exceptional for rising military power. What else is China doing? Well, they are using military power. They are establishing with military power and with their own presence, their military presence, China as an in-region naval power with around-the-clock presence in the waters surrounding every American ally in East Asia. That around-the-clock presence held every Southeast Asian secondary power. China is here, we're large, and we're here to stay. There was a Philippine legislator who said, we know who the real naval power is in East Asia. The United States sends its Navy in and goes home. Chinese are always here. That's a powerful signal, and that's what the Chinese are doing. How else do they do it? Well, island building. Island building was a audacious move. I don't think many states anticipated China would start building islands in the South China Sea. What do they do? They contribute to this near permanent presence in the South China Sea of Chinese Coast Guard vessels, naval vessels in the in proximity to secondary state coastal waters. What are they? Well, they're peacetime bases. It's audacious, it enhances Chinese capabilities, but in a larger perspective, bases are bases of bases. 
The United States has bases in South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, de facto bases in Singapore, even Malaysia. This is what countries do. Remember, the United States used its maritime superiority to carry out constant surveillance of Chinese ships, surveillance of Chinese ports, submarine ports, and mapping the ocean floor. China said, stop this, don't do this. The United States says, we have a legal right, we're gonna do it. It should not be a surprise that China's gonna develop the capability to do the same to the United States. In this case, they decide to do with highlands. Certainly a significant initiative, but bases are bases are bases. Second, they are not a wartime capability. You think of aircraft carriers as being vulnerable today, we should understand that China's island building doesn't really change the U.S.-China military balance because those islands are easy targets in wartime. So audacious, but not especially aggressive given U.S. base presence and activities targeted on China. China's Coast Guard presence, always there. They're near Japan and disputed islands. Every maritime Southeast Asian country has Chinese Coast Guard vessels with them. One might want to just recall that this is a Coast Guard doing this, not a Navy. When the United States wants to have its naval presence around the country, have a maritime presence around the country, it uses a Navy, not as using the Coast Guard. China's large fishing fleets, the so-called maritime militia, not a very appropriate or accurate name, because it's not a war fighting capability, these fishing fleets. Nonetheless, they're large, they're intimidating, and the Coast Guard vessels are nearby. The region is experiencing the presence of Chinese naval, coast guard, and ship presence around the clock. Third thing they're doing is they are using the South China Sea oil disputes, economic disputes over EZs and energy resources as a instrument to compel Southeast Asian countries to change their policy toward the United States. In this respect, we should not understand the maritime sovereignty or economic disputes as an issue of sovereignty. It's not sovereignty that drives these disputes. It's China's security interest. And how do we know this? Because China's policy goes up and down on these disputes. It's not a constant. When countries cooperate with the United States to challenge Chinese security, that's when China gets nasty. And what are they saying? Do not cooperate with foreign powers and do not use your relationship with the United States to challenge China's foreign policy. Philippines, crisis for, and understand that when China does these things, we're looking at it from here in the United States, um, they don't look particularly dangerous. And for China, these incidents are not dangerous. But if you're the Philippines or you're Vietnam, we call these crises, serious crises, because they risk escalation to use of force. But China is creating crises with third with its neighbors to compel them to reconsider cooperating with the United States. Crisis for the Philippines in 2012, when the Philippine ships got trapped inside Scarborough Shoal by Chinese Coast Guard vessels, Coast Guard vessels. Constant pressure around, around Philippine fishing boats following the Philippine submission to the permanent court of arbitration of the economic and easy dispute. Vietnam, when Vietnam does exploration drilling with foreign partners, China creates crises. In Malaysia, very quietly, the China's Coast Guards begin to remind Malaysia, we're watching, we're here. All these are threat of crises. They did it for South Korea. 
in the aftermath of the deployment of Thad, all of a sudden there were fishing disputes in the, in the Yellow Sea. They were always there over disputed features in the Yellow Sea, always latent. All of a sudden, as China was putting sanctions on, on South Korean corporations, fishing disputes emerged in the South China Sea. Vietnam, when they were creating a crisis in 2014, all of a sudden there was exchange of fire on the Sino-Vietnamese border. Um, the Philippines, again, um, daring the Philippines to try and come out of Scarborough Shoal with the risk of hostilities. What do we call this? We call this coercive diplomacy, gunboat diplomacy. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And just to be clear, this is the minimum great powers do. The U.S. uses gunboat diplomacy with Iran. We use our Navy. We don't use our Coast Guard. The U.S. uses gunboat diplomacy today in Latin America. And you're dealing with Venezuela. And of course, American gunboat diplomacy since 1895 in Latin America was just the norm. The PLA Navy didn't kill people. It didn't occupy other countries' territory. We see no effort at regime change in any other country. Gunboat diplomacy. Um, just a reminder is what the, how the United States characterizes this. We call it bullying. Well, yes, when we do it, we call it security, defense. When the Chinese do it, it's called bullying. Because that's what the, the diplomacy is supposed to do. But then second, even in some of the academic literature I've seen, um, when we do something against China, it's called coercive diplomacy. When China does something against the Philippines, it's called bullying. Coercive diplomacy is coercive diplomacy. doesn't matter who you're doing it. When China's behavior is expected within the realm of restraint, and in many ways, even more restrained than the United States. Is China ignoring international law over sovereignty claims? Of course it is. What more would you expect? That China would allow five men in Europe to tell them to relinquish a sovereignty claim? It wasn't going to happen. The U.S. intention or Philippine intention was not to use international law to solve a problem, but to create a coalition to oppose Chinese claims in East Asia and to ally with our countries in opposition to China. On the Philippine part, it was an unfriendly act, and the Philippines knew it. China warned them. In those circumstances, the Philippines should have expected consequences. The United States knew it, too. We had no expectation the Chinese were going to buy by any decision from the, from the permanent court of arbitration. It was a diplomatic instrument, not an effort to resolve a problem through law. And for what it's worth, U.S. recognition of the international courts on U.S. sovereignty claims is not perfect. Finally, we look at China's demands on sovereignty. China has not demanded that any country in Southeast Asia recognize Chinese territorial claims in Southeast Asia. Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, Philippines, it's what China's demand is clear. Do not publicly challenge Chinese claims. You'll have to accept them, but don't challenge them. Particularly don't challenge them in cooperation with American power. For better or for worse, China's been very, very successful and using military power, economic power, to transform the East Asian security order. <clears throat> there has been no effective U.S. response to deter China from its activities or reassure our allies that we will defend them. 
you look at the U.S. response to the permanent court of arbitration in favor of the Philippines, they said, we hope all sides will abide by the law and resolve the dispute peacefully. If you're in the Philippines, you just heard the United States abandon. Vietnam and the multiple crises with China, limited to statements from spokespersons from the Department of State and Department of Defense, hardly what we would call an effective support for Vietnam. And the alignment responses are clear. South Korea under the Moon government, the post-deployment of the theater high-altitude area defense system was single with South Korea's own three nodes. And what were they? No more missile defense in South Korea, no linkage of this missile defense system with Japan and the United States missile defense system, and no Japanese participation, there's no South Korean participation with the U.S. inside the U.S.-Japan alliance, basically saying it wouldn't participate in the Indo-Pacific strategy or the Quad. First time South Korea, any country in East Asia, has reached an agreement with China to restrain their security cooperation with the United States. South China Sea, every country in the South China Sea is moving toward equidistance. They're not taking sides in the U.S.-China competition. They equate U.S. and Chinese policy as militarization <coughs> and heightened competition. <coughs> they say they won't be drawn. All the countries are increasing their joint exercise with the Chinese Navy, providing port support to the Chinese Navy, and in the realm of great power politics, if they say they're not taking sides, which they had before, they were U.S. allies, and the fact that they're not cooperating with China, which they hadn't before, this is an erosion of the U.S. alliance system in East Asia, which is what China had wanted. So a new security order is developing, with the, with the weakening of the U.S. sphere of influence, reflecting the new, new U.S. balance of power. So you, we've all heard, and it's quite common, to hear pushback from around the world, and you'll hear commentary that China's overplayed its hand. Um, public opinion is growing about China, against China. Uh, China's weakening its hand in Western Europe. Um, I would encourage you to minimize and discount those assessments. Um, just as in your local gymnasium, in international politics, we say, no pain, no gain. If China was going to exercise its power, there were going to be critics. The issue is not whether or not there would be pushback. The issue is whether the gains were worth it. And I think many Chinese are saying that if you look at where China is today compared to where it was in 2012, it's paid a fairly nominal cost for the new security order. So what we say is American activities, if you will, but this is the case in the criticism of China around the world, talk is cheap. Watch what these countries are doing. We say about public opinion, not really important. How many, I mean, if you look at the coming election in the United States, China is ranked at the bottom of the list of voter priorities. The defense budget's way down the list of voter priorities. Voters care about health care, race relations, the economy, COVID. Defense is way down. And the people who make defense policy are limited to five or six people in any government. So we should discount what public opinion is saying about China. There's always a cost to every benefit. And the cost benefit for China, I'm sure they're quite pleased, well worth the criticism on the pages of newspapers. Overall, 
China's objects, objectives are typical and expected, secure borders with the absence of another great power sphere of influence, whether it's maritime borders or land borders. Compared to the rise of the United States, one third of the United States was taken from Mexico in war. Compared to the United States and the distinguishing of the American Indian. Compared to the United States and our Latin America policy. Compared to contemporary US behavior. I've lost track of the number of wars the US has waged since the end of the Cold War. Regime change around the world. The king of sanctions. And it doesn't do regime change, it doesn't do wars, and does sanctions, but targeted and few compared to the United States. The sovereignty issue doesn't demand recognition. What does this demand? Shelve that issue. Don't challenge our sovereignty with American support. And if you want to do exploration, do joint exploration. China and Vietnam actually had a joint exploration agreement that expired in January 2014, and Vietnam said, we don't want to renew it. And then they went off and cooperated with the United States. China could rightly believe that this was an unfriendly act. Do joint exploration. Is it difficult for small countries to do? You bet you it's difficult. Makes them nervous to negotiate with a country the size of China, who has all the leverage. Makes it difficult in their domestic environment, absolutely. But how will that oil be divided? Maybe the Philippines will get two thirds. Who knows? To down negotiate. That's what China said. So as great powers go, rising powers go, fairly moderate, restrained, does not mean this is not a serious challenge to the United States. China is making significant gains and minimal cost and minimal disruption. Doesn't mean the U.S. shouldn't compete to advance its own security, but it does say that an informed debate is necessary for effective policy. How great is the Chinese threat to war and peace? Is moderate competition with China possible? Simply put, as a rising power, is it possible for the United States to compete and cooperate at the same time? Are Cold War policies determined by Chinese behavior? If not, then alternative policies are available. Um, let's talk about China and its economic power and its implications for the global economic order. What are its objectives? How is it using its power? What are the implications? Well, today, the foremost economic issue regarding China in American newspapers and think tank analyses is the Belt and Road. So what is China doing with the Belt and Road? They're building a 21st century transportation network connecting Chinese market with the regional economy and the global economy. I can't think of anything more benign than that for a great power to do. It's what great powers do with continental-sized economies. You look at the United States. We built 20th century ports connecting the United States market with Latin America, all along the American border with Latin America, from Miami to San Diego. There are seven US rail lines connecting the United States with Mexico. There are seven major roads connecting the United States with Mexico. There are airports along the entire region, seaports along the entire southern border of the United States connecting China connecting the United States with the Latin American markets. This is what great powers do with continental-sized economies. Why do they do it? Because they want to create dependency of those small economies on the continental market, and that's what China's doing, that's what America did, and use that dependency to compel change. And it wants to expand its own exports so that it increased production within its own country, and therefore develop its own GDP by exports throughout the region. And of course, this is what China is doing also. We call this surplus capacity. Export its 
surplus capacity around the world, therefore keep its production going, keep its GDP going up. And what it will do is China over time with its one belt, one road, will create greater economic power on its periphery and then from the result of expanded trade with the region. Keep in mind, China already dominates the regional economy of both East Asia and Central Asia. The impact of the Belt and Road on China's economic authority in both regions is at the margins relative to that of the United States. We call the TPP, which we were interested in, the Trans-Pacific Partnership for Free Trade Agreement between China and other countries. First, recall that it was clearly an act of containment. We had every country in but the but China. We said China didn't fit the rule. Neither did Vietnam. That's okay. Vietnam, we thought we could cooperate with against China. But understand that TPP was at its margins in economic policy. The WTO only reduces only so far, has reduced significantly tariffs on trade. And then second, China had already become number one in the region. And given that its market is three, four times the size of the American market, its economy is growing twice as fast as the American market, so that its imports from the region will increase three to four times faster than in imports than American imports from the region, TPP was going to be only effective at the margins. What is China doing with this infrastructure? Well, in Central Asia, it's oil and gas imports. This is not a major impact on the global trade world. Oil and gas. Oil and gas is not a major impact on the WTO, on the World WTO international trade order. On the contrary, the trade in oil and gas is regulated not by interagreements, but by the market price of oil. Um, this is not a challenge to the liberal trade order. Second, US and Europe do not source their energy from Central Asia. So this is not even a challenge to energy security. So for both Central Asia and Southeast Asia and all of East Asia, the Belt and Road is a win-win. The countries in both regions are cooperating. They need the infrastructure, China the money. This is a win-win. Hardly aggressive, hardly a challenge. Well, some will talk about China's Belt and Road expansion into Europe. Well, this, this is a myth. What are the implications of Belt and Road activities inside Western Europe? Well, let's look at first for trade. Countries trade with their neighbors. The number two US trade partner in the world is Canada with a population of 38 million people. Why? Because it's our neighbor. Our third largest trade partner is Mexico. Why? Because it's the neighbor of the United States. Poland is going to trade with Germany, beginning and end of story. European countries are going to trade with their neighbors. If you look at the trade patterns between European countries and China, for Germany, trade with China, trade with the United States is 30% larger than trade with China. German trade with France is 20% larger than trade with China. German trade with China is about the same as trade with the Netherlands. Not particularly what we would call a trading power, China. France, China's number seven. Less than a third of its trade with Germany. Half of its trade with Spain and Italy. The U.S. has almost twice the amount of trade with France and China. Again, this is not a trading power. China's number six for Britain. The U.S. has three times the trade with China as Britain. Um, with Italy, it's 3% of its exports. With Greece, it's less than 3% of its export. We need to look at the numbers to understand where China sits as a trading power with Europe. 
What about all this port investment in China? Yes, China is investing a lot of money in building new ports in, within Western, within all of Europe. And the implication for China is the trade power is minimal. One, countries trade with their neighbors. And two, there is no evidence that there is a pent up demand for greater trade being held by, back by the lack of port facilities. Expansion of port facilities is not going to result in a boom of Chinese trade with Europe. What about Chinese investment? Again, very low, the support investment. China's not in the top 15 investors for Greece, not in the top 20 for Italy, not in the top 10 for Poland. With Egypt, it's only 2.5% of total investment. With Turkey, it's less than 8%, not in the top seven. It's not an investment power. But new investment could matter. Well, China's investing in what? Infrastructure, short-term gain. And the projects are over, the gains of employment are over. The infusion of capital is over. China is buying companies. But we say that these are not greenfield investments. China is not building new manufacturing, new companies in Europe. They're buying existing ones. That is to say, they're not creating new jobs. <clears throat> and what has been the impact of all of this activity, this BRI? Countries have joined the BRI. Greece and Italy, hardly what we call a major Chinese diplomatic victory. Um, countries need money for GDP, they need money for their European ports, modernization, they're going to take Chinese money. And the short-term employment is not insignificant, they're going to cooperate with China. What has China gotten out of this? There have been votes by European countries that do not support EU Commission resolutions condemning China for human rights. In the scheme of things, China has not accomplished very much. More generally, we just need to be skeptical that countries can translate economic influence, which China has yet to develop, into strategic influence. So for the most part, the Belt and Road as a security challenge with much ado about nothing. What about Belt and Road and loan defaults, debt trap, et cetera? Well, again, relatively speaking, comparative perspective, if you look at the debt, overall debt, of countries that are Belt and Road Initiative partners, the amount of debt these countries have that is held by China is very, very small. These countries have built up debt over the decades with European countries, Asian countries, and the United States. But China's contribution to their debt is quite small. Second, the U.S. has been making loans to the developing world for decades, and those countries' defaults on loans are quite common. What about debt trap and, and base acquisitions? Well, we have two or three cases out of 1,000 Chinese Belt and Road Initiative projects. Second, the, the poster child for this is Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka was told their project was not viable, and the Indians wouldn't do it. So they went to the Chinese, and the Chinese told them it wasn't viable, the corporations didn't want it. So they went to the Chinese government. The Chinese government said, if this is what government to government you want us to do, this we'll do it. This is a short way of saying that to the extent that there is debt in the faults, the borrowing company has responsibility to it. More recently, China has worked with the IMF to help reschedule some of these loans. 
And China has worked with the host, the recipient countries to renegotiate these loans. This is the case of Malaysia. Um, and just more generally, uh, to the extent that China has the bases in Djibouti or Sri Lanka, um, Chinese activity at these bases and the development of these bases is still at a very early stage of development. Does the BRI have difficulties? Sure it has. The US and NGOs have been granting infrastructure loans to the developing world for 70, 75 years. And success is minimal. It's difficult. Um, the BRI should be seen as a long-term project and it will take time to see results on the ground. And there will be adjustments and, and reactions as China improves its, its policies over time. Is China working with bad governments, corrupt governments? Well, yes, welcome to most of the developing world where the, where the industrial world makes loans. There's probably an exception for the leading industrial economies to grant loans to ineffective and even corrupt governments. And it may even be argued that China's dis relative disregard for the quality of government corruption, environmental issues may be better for development than the conditionalities attached to Western loans, World Bank loans, Japanese loans, the developing world. When China wants to build a project, it gets done. With other loans, all the conditionalities delay and delay and delay. If you want to improve governments, all the literature says you promote development, and then you get change. And to the extent that China's aid is creating rapid development through rapid completion of projects, it may be more effective in creating better government and better environment. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Well, you know, great powers create institutions. China wasn't allowed leadership in the IMF, the World Bank. It wasn't allowed leadership in the ADB and all commensurate with his economic, with his ability to make economic contributions to these organizations and to development in the world. Second, it's their money. They're going to want voting power to go with their money. Countries need money. The U.S. and the Asian Development Bank have minimal funding for new, for, for new projects, despite the American effort to increase its loan capacity. The entire region signed on because they needed infrastructure and, they needed, and China had the money. The AAIIB, like the Belt and Road Initiative, could not be more benign. Will it increase Chinese influence in the regional economy? Sure, but that's a fait accompli. Regarding rules and norms, the AAIIB is staffed with many former employees of the World Bank and other NGOs. It does joint projects with the World Bank and the ADB. Its rules are not identical to the World Bank rules, but they're relatively close, less restrictions on conditionality. Hardly a challenge to the international lending order. China, the global order, again, China never signed on to the full global infrastructure. Engagement never expected China to look like us. Engagement never expected China to sign on to the global order. I don't know anyone in the 90s, 80s, 90s who said China will become a democracy, or that China's trade preferences and investment preferences are going to be identical to the American trade preferences. Rather, the argument then was that it's better to have China inside the system than outside the system. It will see change when it's a rising power, and we want China to be a beneficiary of that system and a member of that system. And I would suggest that was an optimal policy then, and it's been successful. 
He was seeking to avoid revolutionary behavior from outside the system that saw the system as hostile, which is, of course, what the Soviet Union did. And I would again say it's been something of a success. China is seeking revisions over time, not perhaps within the institution themselves, but is seeking change from within the international liberal order, more commensurate with its own interests rather than being revolutionary or destroying it. Is it revisionist of this order? Of course it is. It wasn't at the table when the US and Western Europe drew up the, drew up the, uh, the rules of the international trade, investment, and finance order. And it will reflect Chinese preferences. In this respect, I'm influenced by an article written by Fred Burston. What are China's preferences for the global trade order? And the Chinese approach, as we say, would be less multilateral, more bilateral agreements rather than multilateral agreements. Um, rest reliant on international law when it does its bilateral negotiations, more ad hoc arrangements, greater role of the state and financial institutions and enterprise ownership, greater role of domestic regulations in favoring domestic enterprises. I think these are all these, these are likely trends in China's impact on the global trade order. This is not an overhaul, this is not a revolutionary, this is not transformation, this is something within the system. So what we're seeing is that China is more powerful, that's revisionist, that's challenging U.S. security, seeking change in the international order, but from a comparative historical perspective, it's used as military force in a rather restrained way. It is not seeking to overhaul the liberal international economic order. And from this perspective, when thinking about policy, this is a rising power that enables the status quo power both compete and cooperate. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you very much. Uh, can you hear me now? Bob, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Uh, that was a wonderful explanation of what a rising power does. Um, and one of the things you said was that as it gets more capacity, its expectations change. Uh, what would you advise the American government to do over an issue like, particularly about Taiwan, where perhaps we have the greatest danger of conflict? Some people say that the way to do it is to make it very clear to the Chinese that we would go to war uh, and that that would be a way uh, to prevent uh, China from attacking Taiwan and the best way to do it. Other people feel that uh, there are bargains to be made and adjustments to be made that recognize Chinese uh, growing power uh, and adapt to it. Uh, what would you advise the American government to do uh, in responding, particularly to the Taiwan issue, but other related issues? Thank you, Ezra. The Taiwan issue has a lot of facets to it. Um, so first, we need to understand that the United States policy toward Taiwan under the Trump administration is not driven by a sense of historical commitment. It's not driven by a sense of common values or long-term cooperation. That generation of American policymakers who felt that way about Taiwan do not occupy posts within this administration. The administration sees Taiwan simply as an instrument in its policies toward China to cause problems for China to contain China. In this respect, these arms sales of Taiwan and greater cooperation with Taiwan do not reflect the greater threat of a Chinese use of force. 
we have seen no indication in the last years, two years, that China is contemplating use of force against Taiwan. These are not quote, required for deterrence. They are being driven by an effort to create more problems for China. Third, everyone in the administration in Washington understands that this is a losing hand. Every country in East Asia is cooperating more with China, less than the United States. The only outlier is Taiwan. And Taiwan is a lot closer to the mainland, 90 miles away, far more vulnerable to Chinese power, far less able to rely on American power for defense than Singapore and the Philippines. So our defense relationship with, with Taiwan is an attenuating relationship, inevitably. Having said that, I also don't believe the Chinese have a long-term interest in invading Taiwan. For the simple reason it would be a very, very costly war with no guarantee of a short war where the cost of the Chinese Navy and Air Force would be significant that would degrade the balance of power between China and the United States and military capability. And also we should understand that China has lived with the Taiwan's de facto autonomy since 1949, despite leadership speeches, it does not seem to be a pressing security issue. The most pressing security issue of China is dealing with the United States. But having said all that, it's in the American interest to enable Taiwan to have sufficient security to maintain over the long term security from the mainland use of force. And I believe increasingly the mainland the U.S. ability to contribute to that is waning. And second, we don't want to get involved and we shouldn't be in a, you know, we would rather not have to fight a war over Taiwan. So how does the United States do that? I don't think it's about issuing guarantees. Our credibility to go to war over Taiwan is still pretty high. The idea that we need to bolster that credibility, I think, is mistaken. Um, and second, if we're trying to bolster with declining relative capabilities, our words will not be believed. Um, I also don't want to cut a deal with the mainland. I don't, you know, um, I'm not willing to sacrifice anything for Taiwan if I don't have to. So what would I do? I would say that Taiwan's defense problem is no different, is, is actually better than Cuba's. Right? Cuba. Could the United States invade Cuba and win? You betcha we could. But the price would be really high. So the American policy toward Taiwan is to provide Taiwan with, with the appropriate military technologies that are, I should say, low political profile, uncontroversial, that will give Taiwan the ability to make itself a costly target. And to the extent we can do that, Taiwan doesn't need to worry about a mainland attack and it deters the mainland with its own capability. And we can go down the list of those kind of capabilities that are not particularly controversial or provocative. And they're not expensive either. Um, and I will give credit to Tsai Ing-wen. In the last four years, she has focused more on those kind of capabilities than any other prior Chinese leader. She's taking defense seriously. She's doing other things that I would find counterproductive. But she's the first Taiwan prime minister to take defense seriously by looking at those capabilities that are inexpensive but effective in your terms. Uh one of the things you said was that with growing capacity, uh, intentions change. Mm -hmm. uh, with Japan, the big issue, of course, is the Senkaku, what the Jap uh, Chinese call Diaoyu. Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, constant uh, surveillance and constant moving of uh, fishing boats and 
uh, Coast Guard and some uh, Navy uh, in the vicinity. Uh, what would China want to do with that if they had uh, more uh, power? Uh, what would their, how would their intentions change if they had more capability towards Senkaku and Yagidao? I don't think China cares about sovereignty. It's a nice idea. But I think there are more important issues at stake. So in 2012, the issue was, in 2010, what happened in 2010? Oh, yes. In 2010, they had a fishing boat, and a fishing captain. That's right. And detained the fishing, cap, fishing captain. And China went fairly well ballistic on these things over detaining one fishing captain. In 2012, Japan, the Japanese government bought the islands, and China's attitude was, we told you this was sensitive. We told you not to challenge us. You challenged us a second time in two years. Now we get nasty. I think what China simply wants is Japan not to challenge Chinese sovereignty or Chinese sovereignty claims, let's put it that way, with overt action. And it has, it has sufficient mistrust of Japan that it feels if it lets up on its presence around these islands, who knows what the next Japanese prime minister will do. So it has an interest in maintaining that presence all the time to remind Japan that this is a sensitive issue, don't challenge it. Now, if I were trying to go forward and think what China might want as a next step, I think they'd think it's impossible. It would be nice if the United States and Japan couldn't cooperate to put defense installations on the Davis and Kaku Islands or on the Southern Islands, the um, Rikyu Islands, that would enable um, the United States and Japan to prevent Chinese access to the Western Pacific. And that's what we're doing. We're building up our capacity on the Ryukyu Islands to prevent Japanese, to prevent Chinese easy access through the islands into the south, into the Western Pacific. I don't think the Chinese have aspirations for that. Um, I think the bigger concern now is we watch Japan dealing with the rise of China, and we watch the U.S.-Japan relationship attenuate with a leader who doesn't seem to take defense cooperation seriously, and with the decline of American capabilities. We're seeing a few of the normative restrictions on Japanese defense acquisitions begin to erode. And so we're now, so if you look at Japan, Japan was never a pacifist country. One of the largest navies in the world, one of the largest air forces in the world, uh, one of the greatest submarine fleets in the world. But there were three capabilities it didn't have. Long-range missiles, long-range bombers, and aircraft carriers. No power projection capability. In the last two or three weeks, we've seen Japan move toward developing long-range missile capability that can reach Shanghai, reach Beijing. That normative restraint is breaking down as confidence in America as an ally against rising China is breaking down. Um, in that respect, we're seeing a similar loss of confidence we're seeing elsewhere in East Asia. But because Japan is a powerful country, it's separate by a lot of water, a large population, a large economy, um, you may see an interest in reducing tension with China, but we're going to see Japan develop its own defense capability as well as a deterrent. I think that's where things are going. Uh, now I want to uh, give you a question from Tony Sun, who's Director of Finance Administration at the Harvard College Phillips Brooks House. Oh. The question is this, do you see any parallel between the current U.S.-China uh, tension and the previous Japan-China uh, tension before World War II. 
At that time, the United States tried to cut off uh, Japan's vital oil supply, as you know. Such effort contributed to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, an attempt to drive the United States out of the Pacific. Right now, technically, U.S. Uh, Navy and strategic military bases in Asia uh, created what the Chinese considers as a containment. Will this eventually lead the Chinese to have conflict with the United States? So the U.S. resistance to Japanese activities in Asia. So first, Japan occupies Korea. The United States is not particularly alarmed. Then they occupy Manchuria. The United States gets a little more nervous, but not a lot. Then it moves into the rest of China, which we develop opposition to, or now on a path to war. The path to war began when Japan began to expand its presence and occupation of maritime Southeast Asia, into Indochina, with a stepping stone into the South China Sea. And that would have given Japan hegemony all over East Asia. Two things about that. One, America didn't want Japan to have hegemony over East Asia. There was considerable fear. Just a general strategic outlook in the United States that if a country has hegemony over the, the Europe or the Pacific, then the Atlantic becomes their next aspiration. And so the Roosevelt administration simply didn't like the emergence of Japanese hegemony or any country's hegemony. Of course, that's why you resisted China in world, during the Cold War in Asia, and that's why you resist China today. You resist any countries of Germany in East Asia. So that was the context of the US and Japan, combined with what we would call, you know, what we call Japanese military. When there's a problem, you use force. When there's a problem, you go to war. When there's a problem, you occupy other countries. And so there was a combination of aspirations with no restraint and a willingness to use war. Um, one, today, I don't see the emergence of Chinese hegemony. China is challenging American hegemony, but it's replacing American hegemony with maritime bipolarity. When you think of the big wars in history, the hegemonic wars, they were wars fought because a country was, was gaining hegemony, not because it was becoming a great power with another great power. China's not threatening hegemony. It's just eroding American hegemony. So that's very different than Japan aiming and getting closer to hegemony. Second, yes, the embargo on Japanese energy supplies was significant and it helped to drive Japanese ambition. Having said that, Japan was energy dependent. It had, it had no energy. I mean, I mean, Japan, I forget the number, as you may remember, but the amount of energy imports that Japan had from the United States were phenomenally large. What are you planning for war against a country where you depend on it for its energy? There's something rather unusual about that. China, we need to, there's a myth out there that China is dependent on oil import. Wrong. China is dependent on imports of oil for its oil consumption. But the amount of energy that China imports over shipping lanes is about seven to eight percent of its total energy consumption. So that means two things. One, the United States has no interest whatsoever in trying to use energy constraints to compel Chinese cooperation. And then second, if we did, it wouldn't have any impact. Because China is self-sufficient for the most part on energy. And over time, that self-sufficiency will grow from wind, from solar and nuclear, from energy efficient cars, so on and so forth. 
Uh, it's a very different context. The reason Japan was a great power in East Asia because there was no other great power. America had gone home, China was on its back, the Russians just wanted to deal with, with Hitler. Today in East Asia, there is another great power, and that's the United States. So the threat of hegemony just isn't there. And the next question is from Paul here, who you know is one of the uh, very wise people working on uh, U.S.-China relations, formerly the National Intelligence Council, Council on Foreign Relations. He's now at the Center for National Interests. Here's what he says. Your remarks imply that China's posture in East Asia is more defensive than offensive. Is this really a valid interpretation? And the second question, uh, since you're a realist, where do you think ideology fits into the U.S.-China strategic competition? First, I don't find the terms defensive or offensive helpful in explaining what's going on. I think what's driving China is not is security. And the status quo makes China insecure. So it is taking offensive operations in order to improve its defensive security. It's certainly being offensive when it has gunboat diplomacy against the Vietnamese and the Philippines and so forth, because those kinds of offensive operations contribute to greater Chinese security. And thus far, I think the security objectives are relatively typical. Um, it's rapid, rapid construction of naval vessels, naval ships. It's development of missiles that can target U.S. bases at Guam and elsewhere. This is clearly an effort to expand its military power to challenge American security. Let me put it this way, to enhance American security. But as Ezra says, as a realist, I would see this as a zero-sum security cooperation. There is simply no way that China can feel safe given American hegemony unless it erodes American hegemony by creating a, a more um, a distribution of power that makes American capabilities less overwhelming. But if you're going to reduce American capabilities, you're going to make America less secure. So we're going to look at it, say China's challenging American security. And China could be just simply saying we want American, we want Chinese security. I mean, there is just no way out of that trap. Um, so whether it's a offensive or defensive, um, at this point in time, I see China's behavior is commensurate with its capabilities and its behavior in a way that's relatively restrained. And I think that's sort of a, not even sort of tag it as offensive, defensive, but it's security driven, let me put it that way. Second, in terms of ideology, I don't see any ideology in China. Um, this is still a country which, you know, leadership which says, catch black or white, I don't care, as long as it catches mice. And that's still where they are. I don't see them trying to impose their own regimes, their own values in other countries, whether it's Burma, whether it's Thailand, whether it's Laos, whether it's Kazakhstan, they couldn't care less. They have a pragmatic policy that says, you cooperate with us, we're done. If you don't cooperate with us, you pay a price. And that's it. Xi Jinping goes to Europe. The, I don't hear ideology in his speeches. I don't see it. I don't think he cares. Um, I don't see him as communist in the ideological sense. I see him as a leader of a single party authoritarian state that wants control over the country for political purposes. And that control over the country includes control over a significant number of state-owned enterprises so the Chinese Communist Party can control the economy. It makes him nervous to use that old expression, if the bird gets out of the cage. And the way you keep that bird in the cage is you have state-owned enterprises and state ownership of finance. 
productive for the Chinese economic development? No. But I think that's how a single-party authoritarian state thinks. The United, States, the United States and ideology, I don't think. Look, this is John Foster Dulles, as probably Paul knows, use anti-Soviet ideology to mobilize American public opinion against the Soviet Union. I see nothing different from Secretary of State Pompeo. American people aren't buying it to a large enough degree in order to shape, reshape our defense spending. It's just not working. It's not working in Southeast Asia. Um, it's falling on deaf ears. But this is instrumental, not underlying conflicts. Bob, you've given such full answers that sorry. I've allowed it to uh, go five minutes sorry. longer than it should already. Oh, um, sorry. I, I have to, uh, all good things come to a close. I want to thank you for your very thoughtful uh, comments today that you've been working on this for uh, 30, 40 years. And uh, tell it like it is and give us a lot of food for thought. Thank Thanks you. very much. And uh, we'll see uh, a lot of you next week uh, for next issue of Critical Issues. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everybody.